What's up, everybody? Welcome back for another week of Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is episode 90. This episode sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by our totally awesome patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. You can join them today. Check the show notes for a link. This week on the show, I got a lesson in Texas geography and a history lesson about Beefmaster cattle. You know the drill, gotta pay a bill real quick, and then we're gonna jump into it, so here we go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. John, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you today, man? I'm doing good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so here we are recording kind of about the middle of October, and I'm finally starting to get my hay delivered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, uh, let's see, I just got about 120 bales of improved uh, jigs delivered to my place, which is nice. And, and we were able to get the USDA to kind of... Uh, I guess reimburse us for the loaded miles, which was nice. Is that uh, one of those drought relief programs? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, cool. So, um, well, b- before we get like too far deep into the weeds, um, so you're John Tipton. Yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about where you're at and uh, about your operation. We can start chasing rabbits from there. So I'll start from the beginning. My dad uh, bought 46 acres in Lavaca County, Texas, which is, uh, in Hallettsville. Um, he bought that place in 1980. He had commercial herd. I remember him saying he had like a Hereford bull at one point. Um, and then he started getting into beef masters in 1985. Um, and from his, his good friend and mentor who was a beef master breeders, universal, um, charter member at the time. And, uh, their herd kind of, uh, that, that gentleman's name was, uh, Leon Barnes senior, a brushy Creek beef masters. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but, um, he was a very great mind. I grew up with him, um, you know, knowing him, he knew me and, and, uh, that's kind of how we got started. Um, and we just, you know, growing up, I always knew that I wanted to raise beef master cattle. It's all I knew. I was born in 88, so I was luckily born into it. Um, so it's just aside from, you know, I've always had this goal in mind when I was a kid that I wanted to have a big ranch. I wanted beef master cattle and I wanted to raise a family on that ranch too. So that's, that's one goal that I've never, 
um, set aside or put in the back seat or gotten rid of. I've always kept that goal in mind, and uh, it's still in the works. Um, I'm about to get married in uh, December. Um, Congratulations. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to hone in on my craft and get better at Beefmaster Cattle. Awesome. So um, what's the land base you're on? You said you started with about 40 acres or so, 16, it's, 40? It's at, it's at 46. Okay. Um, and we still have that place. Um, and then we lease about 120, uh, I don't know, about 20 minutes away, nor just northwest of Schulenburg. Um, and then I have 85 acres in Anahuac, Texas, which is three hours east it's all it's between baytown and beaumont but we don't keep cattle down there because uh i got tired of evacuating cattle because of hurricanes it's it's like right on the coast so i got you know okay, okay but help, help me orient you said mm -hmm. you're at howitzville yeah um so so where's that in texas okay so i'm i'm i grew up in houston that's it's so howitzville if you go an hour and a half west of houston on i-10 uh you hit schulenberg texas exit Schulenburg, go south on 77 about 10 15 minutes that's where our place is and then uh so howitzville what you call that south texas or central yeah, coast i do i call okay. it south texas um and so our place is about you know 10 minutes south of Schulenburg on 77 and then howitzville's 20 minutes south of Schulenburg on 77. So I'm kind of halfway between Schulenburg and Hallettsville. Okay. Yeah, I, I can start naming off a bunch of towns in Kansas and even less people mm -hmm. will have heard of them. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, all right. Uh, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're talking about the different properties you had. You said you had one, you had one. About okay. Three so, okay. So uh, the property in Anahuac, it's, I don't know, about an hour east of Houston. And so by that time you start to get real close to the bay. Um, and so we bought that place in June of 99. Um, and so it, it's, it's best hunting property in Texas. In my opinion, you can cover anything. They got gators. Uh, they got waterfowl, ducks, geese, everything. They got deer hogs anything you can think of it's to me it's the hunting mecca of texas there's gators uh, around houston uh yeah it's not i mean we're kind of a bayou i guess you could say i didn't it's, it's, i never thought about it but it, i mean it makes sense that there'd be gators in southeast texas mm -hmm. oh but, yeah right right on the coast it's uh there's a lot of gators i would i would consider that area which is uh where anahuac is it's chambers county texas I would consider that like the Louisiana of Texas. It is, it feels more like Louisiana than anywhere else in Texas. Um, you know, pretty much from there on East going along I-10 it's, there's a lot of swamps, uh, you know, marshy areas. Um, they not so much anymore, but they still do it. Some, they did a lot of rice farming, um, and stuff like that but it's very um very much a hunting region of texas okay um so back to your main place like i'm i'm familiar with where kingsville is where hungerford is uh let me see um i would it's um uh, it's, it's a few few hours north because i'm because i know like houston and where the ranch is it's about 
I don't know, six hours from the border, uh, Rio Grande city border. Okay. Um, so I'd say Kingsville is roughly three hours South. Um, so you're, you're up there a little closer to San Antonio. I mean, we could quit well, Texas geography whenever you want. Um, well, no. So the, the, the easiest way I can put it for people is it's ha exactly halfway between Houston and San Antonio on I-10 and then go South about 15 minutes. Okay. Okay. That works. I like to tell people that I'm like, when I start naming towns in Kansas, like, mm -hmm. you know, I just get blank looks. I'm like, all right, look, I'm 20 miles from Oklahoma, halfway yeah. from Oklahoma, halfway from Colorado to Missouri. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so that's the land that covers the land. Um, right. seems like that, that seems like you're going to have to spend a lot of time on the road moving. moving I did. Around. And so, and so that's why I kind of quit put bringing cattle to, uh, uh Anahuac because, and, and it was nice whenever I didn't have, whenever there was a serious drought in Hallettsville, because the thing about Hallettsville is it during the, the fall and spring grass is good um in the winter if you plant winter grass it's good uh, in certain places but it also de depends on pasture management but in the summer it is brutal it's it's so our summer is like y'all's winter um it becomes very droughty um right now we're at the worst drought that we've ever had and it's it's pretty bad oh trust me john i feel that <laughs> <laughs> i feel that I think everyone does. Um, so just just a few days ago, um, back in mid-October, the uh, National Weather Service put out a graphic of the state of Kansas of how mm -hmm. far behind everybody was on rain. Correct. And, you know, of course, you know, the blue colors are, you know, pretty close to normal or slightly above. And the yeah. red is, you know, anything red or orange is below. Mm -hmm. Probably 75% of the state was some form of red, and there was a lot of almost black on there and there's one spot on the map that's that's minus 15.73 inches behind normal Oof. that's where i that's where i'm at so i i posted good, that one of my friends from over flint hills was like yeah i'm that dot that's minus 17.9 and i said well yeah but you get like twice the rain that i normally get 150 miles away so mm -hmm. 17 back for you it's bad I get it, yeah. but it's probably not quite as bad as, you know, almost 13 back for me. Mm -hmm. so it's and to, to kind of help people understand, you know, I, I, not too long ago, I posted videos of how bad the drought conditions were on TikTok, you know, and it, uh, I would say, you know, like in one of those videos I showed where the water line would be as if that tank were full. And this is at my place, uh, our lease place. Uh, right by Schulenberg. And so it's, I mean, it was a good 30 yards, uh, receded. I mean, okay. We, we got to deal with a little bit of vocabulary here. Mm -hmm. You're calling it, you're saying tank. And when you say tank, I think of a 16 foot fiberglass tank because that's, mm -hmm. that's my paradigm. Or I think of, you know, a yeah. metal tank or some kind of fiberglass tank sitting on the ground or, you know, that's mm -hmm. slightly in you're talking about a pond. Correct. Yeah, a, that's a that's dirt, uh, a dirt tank. <laughs> that's that's kind of a Texas terminology for pond, lake, you know, whatever. Well, a pond is smaller than a lake, so I you probably call it a pond. Uh but yeah, we call it a tank. I mean, that's just kind of how I grew up hearing it. So and my buddy from Arizona, 
um, Ed Brecker, he corrected me. He educated me a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, that's a, that's, that's a tank. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's a pond, Ed. And he's no, that's a dirt tank. That's we call them dirt tanks. Right. Okay. Fine. You Arizona weirdo. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guys down in Southwest do stuff a little bit different. So, right. Um, so drought, drought planning, you mentioned, uh, you know, your place in Hallettsville mm-hmm. when it's bad there, you've got some other property farther East that you can go to. Um, we could, uh, yeah, and, and traditionally we have, but at those times when we have needed that property, sometimes it would be during the middle of hurricane season. And that's probably so, less than ideal. Right. And so, um, I would say there's been a few times where I've had to pack those cows up and haul them back. But, um, I forget what the name of the hurricane was, but, um, cause like usually, because both places in Anahuac and Hallettsville, we go off of I-10 because the place in Anahuac, it's, I don't know, 15 minutes south of, of I-10. And so we just go on I-10 and go towards Hallettsville or vice versa. Um, but there'd be hurricanes where you would have people from all over just stopped on I-10 for hours and hours and hours not moving uh, where they were in place. And like so, the, the traffic wasn't moving or people were just stopped because they were. Well, the, the traffic just wasn't stopped. Like that you'd have cars just lined up on I-10 trying to get out of the coast. And uh, at one point, the, the last time I did it, me and my buddy, my buddy helped me. And so what not like, cause normally that drive takes about three hours. Um, if I remember correctly, that drive took us, at least six hours and, and so we had to go through back roads and all this crap and it, i'm just like I'm, I'm not doing this again so we don't have cattle down in anwak anymore because of that um but and so now it's it's just hunting property and a financial resource okay fair enough i, I was just kind of reminded of a of a hurricane that i had to ride through when i was in the navy in virginia mm-hmm and, um, you know, generally what, if you're assigned to a ship and there's a storm coming, you just mm-hmm. leave because you're allowed, you can run away at sea. <laughs> I mean, right, right. you could you could generally run faster than a hurricane can catch you. Mm-hmm. Um, but our boat was in the shipyards, so we weren't going anywhere. Oh man. Yeah. And, um, it ended up like the, the main body of the storm was supposed to come right through where I lived and right through, you know right through Norfolk, Virginia beach area. Right. So my buddy, Richard, he had a place out in the country about an hour away, little town. I think it was called Dendron. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, Hey, it's not supposed to be bad out there. Just come out to Dendron. We'll ride the storm out. Cool. Mm-hmm. So we went out there and, um, yeah, the storm decided it was going to shift its track a little bit farther to the left than they thought it would. And the eye came right over us. And it turns out wow. where I lived in Virginia beach, barely got hit. Uh, so we had to ride out the worst of the storm mm-hmm. and, um, you know, you've dealt with hurricanes. There's always trees mm-hmm. down, blocking roads, power lines mm-hmm. down. Um, yeah, we had to work for pretty much a half a day just to, we could get out of town. Mm-hmm. And then it took us another half a day to make the hour and a half drive back to Virginia beach. So I mean, we first started going South and started running into closed roads and flooding. We're like, okay, well, we'll just box around all this stuff. Right. Yeah. That didn't work. 
Mm -hmm. We ended up having to go all the way back to the north, all the way back around Richmond. Yeah. Um, Hurricane hurricane traffic patterns are not fun. It's a lot easier when they just call you up and like, yep, storm coming, get on the boat, we're going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when you just hope your car's still at the base when you get back. That's for sure. Um, You know, I remember when Harvey hit Houston, it's, you had uh, a lot of people from Louisiana in their airboats, what they called them, the Cajun Navy came yep. to help and help rescue teams and stuff like that. I mean, you have cars all over underwater. Um, I had from at my parents' house, it, uh, water was inches from the door and it was, some of it was flooding into the back door. Um, and we were sitting there with the shop back, just hosing out water for hours. And it, uh, I didn't get much sleep those, those few nights for sure. I can imagine. I could imagine. All right. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Let's uh let's circle back to beef masters. Let's talk about beef master cattle and um I guess start start with breed history and kind of end with why they're cool. Okay. Uh so uh beef masters they were developed uh by Tom Lasser in 1931. Um he closed his herd in 1937 and then they became recognized in 1954. Um they were developed on six characteristics, uh, which is weight confirmation, hardiness, milking ability, fertility, and disposition. And those are the kind of criteria I think that don't just apply to beef masters, but I mean, they can apply to any cattleman. Um, you know, weight's important because that's what gets you paid. Uh, confirmation, you have to have a, a good sound animal with good feet and legs, lots of muscle, um, you know, some of that's probably also consistency in the shape and size of the cuts. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and the way Tom Lasser defined it was the type on the hook, um, right. you know, which I think is very applicable to commercial cattlemen in the scene stock business. Um, a lot of it's visual appraisal um, because what makes money in the seed stock business as well is based on how that animal looks. People li- want to be able to buy something what they like to look at. Um, and then you got hardiness, which you have to have an animal that can withhold poor conditions. Um, you know, for example, this drought, my cattle are, they're not in perfect condition by any means, but they're not in poor condition. And, you know, they, my pastures look like golf greens, except they're brown and dead. Um, and then milking ability, you have to have a cow that can that has a good sound utter, you know, small teats for that calf to be able to nurse on its own. Um, but she has to be able to convert that milk into pounds on that calf. Um, you know, fertility without that cow breeding, we wouldn't be making money. Um, you know, she has to be able to breed back with that calf at side, you know, too many people make excuses saying, Oh, you know, she's not bred back because she has that calf at side. Well, she's not making you money. That's costing you money. Yeah, like take away all of our bullshit, all of our fences, correct, all of our corrals, all the AI, mm-hmm. you know, and and then what's what? You know, take away all the inputs and let's see what gets bred in an, right. in someone else's commercial herd. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, disposition. You don't want to be around cattle that are going to hurt you. I mean, you have to have animal animals that are easy to work with. Um, disposition also applies to carcass quality when they're sitting there running around high head and they're going to waste that marbling. And, um, and they're going to be, yeah, that's an animal that's in higher stress. Right. 
And when an animal is experiencing a state of high stress, they're not mm -hmm. gaining weight. Correct. Correct. Um, and then so moving on, uh, the original genetic makeup of beef masters is one half boss Taurus and one half boss Indicus. The boss Taurus comes from Hereford and Shorthorns. Um, well, milking Shorthorns specifically. Okay. Um, to kind of improve that udder quality. And then the boss Indicus, um, it was as Kevin kind of called it the zebu cattle. I mean, I, if you look like on Wikipedia, they say Brahmin, but it wasn't that simple. They used uh, a lot of Nalori, Jir, and Guzrat cattle. Um, I, and so I, that's kind of how it goes. I feel like, I feel like there's still some colonialism mm -hmm. in the breed names that are carrying over. Like, mm -hmm. because, you know, a stupid European white people couldn't pronounce the African word for the breed. So they just made something up or mistranslated it. And that got accepted into literature and into, you know, and into our culture. And I think we need to kind of maybe unlearn some of that. Right. Yeah. And see, I'm not going to lie. Whenever I said Jir, I listened to Kevin Deleuze's podcast and that's how he pronounced it. So I'm going to kind of go with that because he would know better than I would. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. So um but yeah that's that's kind of the general makeup of of beef master cattle uh for the first time ever i've been able to go to Lasseter's uh sale look at their herd it was back in in september and it was a really cool experience um they had their highest turnaround of pregnancy rates in a while and so i think they only had 20 percent not get bred back um, they move their cattle in March, give or take from, uh, Matheson, Colorado down to Falfurious. Okay. So, and they move the, because of the drought, that's why they moved them back down. And so they, it's pretty serious change in environment and forage. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, some of the cattle were breathing pretty heavily cause they couldn't handle such, such humidity <laughs> at first, but, uh, surprisingly they did really, they were doing really well um you know but it it was cool to see the the foundation herd in in the flesh for the first time um it was definitely one of my bucket list things you know yeah for that that definitely would be cool um so i wrote a note down here you know one of one of tom lassiter's uh it was six points right six essentials yes sir one of them was milking ability mm -hmm. and so let's talk about that first for just a second and right. you know since since the 50s 60s have came and gone and mm -hmm. grain is cheap enough to feed the cows and steel and diesel are cheap enough to build these massive you know feeding facilities i think that milking ability has gotten screwed up in in the modern commercial type cattle that are you know for that environment right and, um you know one of one of the epds that that's on a lot of in a lot of bull catalogs is milk production Right. And, you know, of course, the Holstein guys, they want to focus on milk production. And I think there's a huge difference between a cow that's going to put out 100 pounds of milk a day versus a cow that's putting out 20 pounds of milk a day in the mm -hmm. nutrient density of that milk. Mm -hmm. And I, like in my mind, you know, we're talking about a breed that is developed back in the 20s and 30s and pretty much mm -hmm. set. Mm -hmm. And back in the twenties and thirties, we didn't have the benefit of, you know, sweet feeds, cake, distillers, grains, right. um, 
you know, it, it was a lot lower energy feedback then. And it was a lot, um, it was lower energy budget through the entire year. So mm. a cow that's going to exhibit excellent milking ability on a very energy limited diet like that, mm-hmm. that tells me a couple things. That cow can lay down enough body fat. She's, mm-hmm. she's exceeded her nutritional requirements that she's laying down significant fat deposits mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it needs to be said. A, a, an animal, a mammal, does not make milk directly from the food that it eats. It has uh, to eat the food. The food has to be stored as fat, and then the milk is made from the fat cells. Right. So we have to have those fat deposits before we can have good, high-quality, rich milk. Mm-hmm. So, and this kind of goes like, I'm working my way through the Bondsman Lectures book. Right. If you If you're familiar with the book, it's a little dense. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, but I've, I've wanted to figure out how I could get a hold of those. You know what I'm saying? Cause I've, I've heard about Bondsman a lot and I've definitely wanted to understand his brain a little bit. Okay. I'll tell you where I got my copy of the Bondsman lecture papers mm-hmm. and I'll try to remember to get back to milking ability. I actually got my copy from Steve Campbell. Okay. And that was down at grass fed exchange. He had them down there for sale and mm-hmm. I bought a copy. If you're looking for a copy of that Bonsma book on Amazon or a bookseller, mm-hmm. be ready for three to 500 bucks. Okay. It's so far out of print. I mean, everything is super rare and you don't now in the last couple of years, since people have actually started hearing about the Bonsma lectures a lot. Uh, yeah. It's obviously in demand. So, right. Um, they're out there. They're just, they're just difficult to get. And if you're really interested in trying to pick up a copy of those bonds with lecture papers, I would suggest going to talk to Steve Campbell at tailormadecattle.com. Okay. And I'll try to put a link to that in the show notes. Right. But, uh, yeah. so going back to milking ability, um, the thing that I found very interesting about Tom Lassler's philosophy is, he was very he he had a very regenerative mindset and so i've never heard the term regenerative agriculture until i've listened to you know tiktok you know and but as soon as that kind of light bulb went off in my head and i'm like that's exactly what tom laster was trying to preach whenever he constructed beefmaster kettle um because he was very um emphasized on wanting to see how he can develop cattle that excel with nature with what it provides nothing else and so you know it that's again that's why i say the six essentials that he provided you know i think that can be very applicable to not just beef master cattle but anyone that has cattle sounds like he was really trying to promote breeding an animal that fits your environment correct correct and uh it's kind of go ahead to kind of uh understand understand that a little deeper since we were talking about books he they uh the lassiter family they have a book called the lassiter philosophy of cattle raising and you can you can find that on amazon and you can find that uh on easy cattle company.com um which is one of the lesser herds. Um, It'll be, but, I'll put, I'll find it. I'll make sure we get a link in the show notes. Right. Yeah. No, I just, I think that book and that philosophy 
can only benefit anybody that had cattle. I mean, it, it, it doesn't just pertain to beef masters. So, right. I'm, I'm still hung up on milking ability. Mm -hmm. And, um, so one of the things that, that my friend Ed told me, um, my friend Ed Bricker was my mint was, he was a mentor, a really good friend for several years. He had a ranch just up the, just up the river. Um, you know, I'd help him with management and fencing and burning type stuff. And he'd help me a lot with cattle. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so he, he's the one that got me started on Corrientes. Okay. And one of the things that Ed, Ed, Ed always told me about was he, he looked for the cows that had a real small bag, but were right. still raising a good calf. Right. And he always said that the milk the Corriente makes is way richer than a typical Angus cow is going to make. She's mm -hmm. going to make a lot less, but it's going to be a whole lot richer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of falls in with what we're talking about. You know, yeah, the cow's got to put lay down fat, but mm -hmm. she only needs to lay down just enough fat so she can live through the winter and make enough milk for her calf. That's mm -hmm. all her body's going to want to do. Right. And, you know, through selective breeding, we find these good, we find these, you know, smaller frame cattle that are forage efficient in the pasture mm -hmm. that have great milking ability. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the ones that definitely need to be kept because they're providing, you know, that extra punch to their calves. All right. I agree a hundred percent. And so, um, one way that we are in the beef master breed, uh, and I'm sure with a lot of other seed stock breeds as well, one way that we're able to determine that is ratios. So if you can find an animal that, or if you can find a cow that consistently has calves that top their contemporary groups, that's the kind of cow that you need to have in your herd for sure. Okay. Um, unpack that a little bit. Like what, what metrics are you using to measure that? So the beef master breed, they are, they automatically calculate ratios. So when you have a contemporary group, although you have to have calves that are born within a 60 day window. Okay. And so that, and it has to be from the producer themselves. Like you can't buy a cow and have a calf at side and then bring it. And that calf will not be in that contemporary group. It has to be produced on your ranch. And so, uh, you have the mean ratio number is 100. That's the middle. Okay. And then, so the, the calves that perform, the average they're going to be at or close to 100. The animals that uh, outperform their contemporaries will and ratio. You, are you higher. talking like strictly on a weight gain performance? Weight and scan data and scrotal circumference with bulls. Um, any kind of weights and measures is where these contemporary groups are applied or okay. the, the ratios are applied. Um, and so the better performing animals are so it also it depends on how big the contemporary group is uh with the ratio window but the bigger the contemporary group and the better the animal performs the higher above 100 that ratio will score now okay. the poor the poorer before performing animals will ratio under 100 so again that mean average number is 100 Okay. And so the higher the performing animal goes, the higher above 100 it goes. And so obviously, um, and that, that ratio number will affect that animal's EPDs. Okay. 
And so that's kind of how that works. Okay. And so if you can find animal, and so also in addition to those ratios um, in the, in the system, it will show, okay, this animal ranked second out of 15 or first out of 15. So that kind of helps you understand where that animal scored in that contemporary group. Okay. That makes, that makes some sense. Right. Um, all right. Where do we go now? Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about EPDs? Do you think that EPDs are, are an accurate measurement or do you think they're just kind of an okay guideline? So I do utilize EPDs in my herd, but, um, so the genetics that I use are from the cooperative that I'm involved with. Okay. And so I know a lot of people have skepticism on EPDs because they feel like, oh, people are lying about it. Well, you can pick a part, you can have a big assumption as to who those people are because the numbers seem incredibly unrealistic. Um, but, and especially if you're using your own genetics, the EPDs will fall into place as to where they should. Um, you know, and I, and, and again, it's not a tool. It's not, or it's a tool. It's not the Messiah. It's not the end all beat all. It's a tool. Don't single trait select for it. Single trait select or select for a balanced animal, because when you single trait select, you are going to sacrifice other important traits. Um, so again, just use it as a tool. Um, but from my experience, EPDs, have been pretty consistent with how the animal has performed but with epds you have epd accuracies which is what you have to look at also okay and um i dna test my animals and that helps with the accuracy as well because you have uh genomic enhanced epds and uh you know it's it, again you have to if if you're new to um an association you have to figure out what program uh, to invest in initially. And then from that point, you either raise your own genetics or uh, keep yourself invested in that program to create consistency within your herd. Yeah. And I think I see a lot of guys either. I see a lot of guys just kind of not really. What the, what the hell am I trying to say here? It seems like a lot of folks just want to take an easy way out and have an easy. Formula. It is. And I, especially in the registered business, I've seen a lot of people come in with a lot of money. They don't want to do anything. They don't even want to fix their own fence. They don't even want to manage their own cattle. They want to pay someone else to do it. Um, they just want to show and, up and, at the meeting they, with the, with the name on the shirt and the big black right. hat. It, it's to them. It's about shaking hands and making money, but if they don't do it properly, they're not going to make money. They're going to lose money. And those are the kind of people that you'll see gone within five to 10 years. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like in the cattle business in general, you have to earn your stripes. You have to sit back. You have to learn. You have to be mentored by someone initially. Um, it's not the cattle business is not a get rich quick scheme. And too many people think it is. That, that try to come into it and it's incredibly unforgiving to slow learners mm -hmm. it is and i mean and, and i think that the main factor is is when when someone tries to get into the cattle business you have to love it and you have to have a passion for it 
because if you don't, you won't last. I, mean, I agree. And I think that there's different different avenues that that passion can take. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have a passion for a breed. Some people just have passion for cows. Mm-hmm. Some people have a passion to be on horseback all day and out in the sunshine. Right. And some people have passion to want to go out and just walk around the grass all day. Right. It's, it's finding the combinations of your passions that make the light that can make your livestock operation and your lifestyle work. Mm-hmm. All right. I agree hundred percent on that. Um, you made a comment earlier that I'd like to circle back to while we're still, you know, reasonably close to the subject of breeds and breeding about, uh, about breeding for looks versus performance. I believe they can go hand in hand because, um, visual appraisal can, it, it, it can depend on how the animal performs. If you have, again, you have to animal that's easy fleshing. Um, if that animal's not easy fleshing, they're going to fall apart. And so you have to look for that. It's not something that can be, I don't know, it's it's not a numerical value. Um, it's, it's a visual appraisal. Um, and again, you have to look for an animal that has good feet and legs. Um, you know, you have to animal that's, that's structurally sound, you know, good top, good hip, hip on them, uh, lots of muscle behind them. You have to, they have to be wide from behind when you look at them, um, you know. And you have in your cows need to look like cows and your bulls need to look like bulls. Otherwise there's going to be a hormonal or hormone imbalance. Yeah, I, I agree. Like the, no other place do we want things to all look the same, you know, Mm -hmm. a square box, the boys to look like girls, the girls to look like boys other than in the show ring with, um, yeah, with some types of cattle. And I, I think, you know, I, I go back to, you know, what, what Bonsma says, what Steve Campbell translates and what he says, you know, the bull needs to look like it's walking uphill on level ground. Right. You know, big neck, big shoulders, good mm-hmm. guts, you know, medium waist, decent right. butt, your cows, you want your, you know, decent neck, small shoulders, big guts, big butt, right. good udder. And you want her to look like she's walking downhill on level ground. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of your power and and you get from the bull and a lot of your kind of more eye appealing uh, feminine traits you get from the cow. And that's, you know, that kind of creates a balance when you cross those two together. When you say that bull's got a lot of power, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Uh, a lot of muscle, m- mostly, mainly a lot of muscle, just a lot of natural thickness, um, you know, wide, wide and wide spring of rib. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't know how to explain it better, but, uh, I mean, muscle goes a lot of, a long ways with power. You want to see something that just looks like it's jacked, just muscle on top of muscle or. Yeah, you want, so you don't want to go overboard with it because when you have an animal that's too extreme in one direction, it's going to sacrifice other traits. So if you have it, it's, if you look at a bodybuilder, he has a hard time walking around. And yeah, so if a lot of them don't know how to stretch, <laughs> right? Well, so if you have an animal that has too much muscle, they're going to be short strided. They're going to, they're not going to walk like an, like an athlete. Okay. And you want the best way you want to put it is you want a cow to walk like an athlete. It's got to have flexibility to it because it's, it's gonna, 
it's not going to be easy for them when they're walking on on long on long terrains, you know, big pastures. Yeah, you, you can see my my stuff's right. not exactly flat. You know, I've I've got to yeah. have some athletic cattle that can travel hills and mm-hmm. you know that that are that are pretty mobile. Right. Um so we're still trying to talk about beef masters here. Um so Tom Lasser came up, you know, with the breed philosophy, and you know, it, it does very much sound like what we're calling regenerative agriculture now. Uh-huh. And you know, just doing some more thinking about that, the time frame that he developed it, all these modern inputs weren't available. They were not, no. And I think we're we're entering an era where the modern inputs are going to become I think they'll still be available. I just think they're just going to keep going up and up and up in price rapidly, you know, faster than we can, faster than we can increase our, our revenue to, to buy. Them. Sure. Sure. And I think that I, I, I really feel that, you know, we need to be moving back towards what the beef masters are with every breed of cattle, you know, mm-hmm. something that's, you know, we need to be looking at these animals that are going to do better on the resources we have. Right, that are going to raise a good calf that we're not going to have to use use a lot of inputs in. So I agree. That being said, um, what what are what are some of the better beef master crosses you've ever come across, and what are some that don't work if you've ever seen any? You talking about like beef master cross with other breeds or crossbreeds? Yeah, beef master with Brangus or beef master with you know um, or whatever. I think it it all depends on your region, but. Um, based on what I've seen, beef masters with Angus do really well, uh, because I mean, Angus obviously are in such high demand in the, throughout the commercial industry. Um, beef masters cross with Charlays cause they really put the pounds on. They really put the pounds on. They do well. Um, a lot of sale barns are familiar with Charlay because of that yellow color. Um, and you know, Angus and Charlay do really well. Um, I really like red Angus, um, you know, especially like if you're in more South regions where it's hotter, I think those do well because, uh, a lot of black cattle are underneath those trees while the more lighter colored cattle are out working. Um, do your beef masters stay out working all day in the Texas heat or they go shade up all day. They work all day. Now, I mean, occasionally you'll see them underneath the tree, but that's with any animal. Um, but they, uh, they're out working when a lot of cattle are, are resting underneath the tree that's for sure or standing in the creek or mm-hmm. standing in the tank <laughs> yeah so i got i have a jersey nurse cow um and she will be almost head deep into that pond while the you know my other beef master cows are are out working or she'll be underneath the tree she looks like she i mean she'll have her tongue sticking out panting like she's about to die Hey, the beef masters are just up there in the top of the yeah. hill and in, in the hot right. wind and blazing sun, just having a good old time. Right. I, I would definitely back that up. The last two years I've commingled my Corrientes with, uh, with some Angus and some Herefords mm-hmm. and, you know, that type cross. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that the first warm days we get coming into, you know, after they show up coming in, you know, late May and June, my Corrientes, they stay out they stay out hustling and work all day. And those black cows, they just, yeah. they head for the water. They head for the shade, man. I think that, uh, Corianni cattle especially are kind of underappreciated price wise. Um, I think that they, they create a good solid foundation maternally. Um, of course they don't do the best on across the scale, but I think they're a great, 
Man, I'll breed. send you a picture of some ribeyes, some ones we just got back from the plant. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, it's it's one of those things where you kind of have to bypass a sale barn and feedlot with with those one one hundred percent. Um, I don't know. It's and I and I'm kind of getting to that point to where like my bull my bull calves that won't make make the cut. You know, I I'm trying I'm wanting to figure out a way to start up a producer to consumer type uh business uh on the side you know nothing you know i'm gonna probably start really small a couple calves here and there to kind of get a feel for it but um i want to bypass the feedlot and you know packers and sale barns very cool it you know even if it's just not even not even four or five animals a year mm -hmm that can still be a very significant bump on a ranch's bottom line, just direct marketing, even five yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, let's see, I've heard of people that had, that had some steer calves. I mean, they gross somewhere close to $4,000 off of a steer, which is incredible compared to, you know, six to 800 bucks across the scale at the sale barn. Uh, I don't have a copy in front of me, but just for grins, um, and I'll try to remember put a link in the show notes to the USDA grass-fed beef report. Mm -hmm. They only put it out about once a month. Um, and the last one I saw was I printed at the end of August, I think, and it came out the beginning of August. Right. Uh, the, the court, if you believe the USDA numbers, and there, there's guys selling pasture finished grass fed halves for mm -hmm. six bucks on the rail six bucks a pound on on the rail that's about that sounds about right uh, uh like grass-fed ground beef national average i think was 850 a pound on that report that's good ribeyes 40 a pound sirloins were 35 a pound wow that's that's approaching American Wagyu prices. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> if you're in the right market, I mean, it, yeah, forty dollars a pound for ribeye. Sign me up for that. Right. Oh, you know? <laughs> all day, all day. Sign me up. But uh, you know, the market, it's there. I think the mm -hmm. market is there. The price is there to support what we're doing. I mean. For, for the economics in October of 22, I mean, November might be completely different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, currently I think the economics make a really, really strong case to grass finish animals. Right. Right. And I think, I think that price elevation, a lot of that goes into trust because people trust what, what the producers are doing. They can, you know, a producer can take a picture of an animal saying, this is what you're getting. Yeah. You can't you can't say the same thing for commercial beef at the store. Yeah, one hundred percent, and that's that's something I've been talking about for a long time. Is mm -hmm. is transparent traceability in the food system in the food supply? Mm -hmm. And there was um, well, there's one of a guy on TikTok, Wyoming rancher. His name is Drew per Person Pearson. Okay, should I hope I said that right? <laughs> you probably it's probably Pearson. Yeah, oh, one of, one of them is probably wrong and. Yeah, I guess right. hate mail, whatever. Anyway, Drew's a really cool guy. We had him on, gosh, I want to say it was back like episode 15 or 17 or something. Oh, okay. And he's got a really cool program called Beef Chain. 
and uh, basically you take your EID numbers, right? You send them to them and they start tracking them on the blockchain. And like, eventually the goal would be that, you know, when my calves are born or the first time they're worked and they get entered into my system, those numbers go off and they get tracked it. They get tracked on, on beef chain mm -hmm. and pretty much nothing would happen again until I processed it. And then when mm -hmm. I process it or have that animal processed, then a QR code goes on each one of those packages. Okay. And that QR code traces back to that blockchain record. Mm -hmm. And the way beef chain is set up, I would have control over who gets to see what parts of that data. That's interesting. So if I put in, if I put in that data record, you know, birthday, way day, when we worked them, when we put the tags in, when we did the vaccines, when we cut, you know, and weights at different dates, all that gets attached to that animal's permanent record on the blockchain and it can't be changed. And if it does get changed, there's a record of the change and who changed it has to sign, you know, that, that, that was changed. Wow. Um, and then that data, you know, as long as there's a, a chain of custody that keeps that meat tied to that record, you know, that can go all the way to the end consumer. So they've mm -hmm. actually done this um, with some with some beef that they shipped over to, I believe, Taiwan and Japan. Mm -hmm. That when they like when the when they serve the meat at a restaurant, they bring out a QR, they bring out a card with a QR code on it. And the consumer can scan that QR code and look at every date, all the data they want about, about that animal, where it was from, how it was raised, when it was born, when it was slaughtered, what it weighed, and if it had any, any medications. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. So I, and I think that's a direction, you know, I, I guess we can have a conversation about, you know, EIDs and mandatory tracing and traceability. Now, right. We're, we're sitting here talking about EIDs and tracking shit on blockchain. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The government telling me you have to put EIDs on your cows and you have to give us the numbers. Now we've got a problem. Right. I'm, like, I'm not a fan of someone telling me what I can and can't do with my kettle. Or just telling us you have to, you have to put these buttons in all your cows. You don't have to give us the numbers, mm -hmm. but you have to have this, this identification on your animals. Right. I, I'm not even sure I like that either. Um, but, you know, the fact is there's a lot of technology that exists that mm -hmm. can benefit us in a lot of different ways if we choose to use it. But there mm -hmm. are always, you know, there's always risks that come with technology. I agree. So, um, I got to pay a bill real quick. So we'll be right back in about 60 seconds. All righty. Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A 
C90.com. C90 is available to distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. And we're back. So we were, we were talking earlier that the Beef Masters were, were probably maybe originally one of the first breeds developed along some of the regenerative agriculture principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, and obviously it, it really seems like we got away from that as an industry, um, as the, the whole of the industry, we really got away from that. Mm-hmm. you know, as we kind of got into the fifties and sixties, um, have you, what, what changes have you made recently to move back to a more regenerative type of ranching? Well, I, I'm still in the process of one of trying to make those changes, but, uh, I, w- I would, I definitely need to kind of restructure my like I need, I need to develop more cross fencing to do rotational grazing. Uh, I'm not at that point yet, but I'm, I'm, that's definitely one of the changes that I'm wanting to make. Um, you know, like we've, we've, you know, the past couple of years we've done uh, weed killing, but that's not regenerative. So what I'm trying to figure out is how you can get a better control of certain undesirable weeds within that pasture so what's an undesirable weed well like because we got broom weed like that's that's choking out some of my grass and so i don't know how to kind of get a handle on that because i mean and so we have i have a uh a a regenerative friend that lives down the road for me uh and you know because i'd ask him that same thing he said that you know spraying salt water along those pastures uh, spraying liquid molasses and so that would kind of create more of a palatability standpoint to eat the some of those undesirable things but i also got i also have weeds that have a lot of stick burrs and cockleburrs which um yeah cows I don't, don't want to like to eat that stuff right and so how do i get a handle on that you know what i'm saying and so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out how I can get a better handle on that. Um, part of me, part of me, kind of wants to say that you know things like you know the stickers and the cuckleburrs and the broom weeds are a sign of of poor health. Now, right. I'm not. Don't take that as an attack. No, no. I I mean, it's I'm not. It, it's it's just the way it is. Mm. But that also means that the only way to go, like the direction, is up. Yeah. And I I still have cockleburrs, I still have stickers in the pasture. You know, I, there's there's places that are undesirable. Right. And um you can choose to look at it as a problem. Yeah. Or you can choose to not look at it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the little cowboys that worked for my dad back in the late 80s and early 90s there was a like there there was a washout by a fence or some erosion or something and mm-hmm. one day dad was getting really upset about it and get kind of keyed up and he was he was wanting to fix it wanting to know what to do and you know 
just had like a 65 horsepower Massey Ferguson tractor with a front end loader on it. Like you're not going to go do a bunch of dirt work with that thing. Like that's not the right tool for the job. Right. And he couldn't figure out how to fix it. And, you know, he kept talking about, kept talking about it. And eventually Ivan just said, well, if it bothers you so damn much, why do you keep going over there and looking at it? <laughs> yeah. Fair point. But it, it, so, sometimes that's easier said than done though. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, very much so. But, um, going back to our practices, we've always in the winter, we've always, uh, drilled oats. Well, I say drilled and it, initially we, we would disc it and then drill it. Um, and then that we didn't like messing with the, the grain drill that much. So we would disc it, spread it and then disc over it again to kind of cover it. Okay. Um, but that's, and so I made a comment the other day on uh TikTok where I said, some of our, some of the things that we're doing is costing us money. And that's one of those things. I do believe that, uh, putting down oats is a good thing because it cuts back on feed or feeding hay. Um, yeah, for sure. So I think in, in the, th in the method, I think that would work. That would kind of, be regenerative related is to just uh no-till drill it um you know and i have a buddy that doesn't he does really well with it so i think that would be a regenerative approach to what i've been doing um you know and so that's that's kind of what i have in mind at the moment but i'm completely new to the whole regenerative philosophy and so I'm, I'm definitely wanting to learn more about it for sure. Well, like we were, like we talked earlier about, um, you know, your forage on most of your ranches is good in the mm -hmm. fall and in the spring. Right. So now hear me out. If we, you know, turn back the clock, 1700, 1800, whatever, when there's still plenty of Buffalo roaming around. Right. So what if, like in the fall, in the winter time, they were down around your part of the world. Right. Because you got good forage. Like the grass has, you know, there's good punch, there's good green grass. Yeah. And then as you go through the, you know, the fall and the winter and you start rolling into spring, they start running out of grass down south and they just chase the green up all the way north through the plains, end up in Canada in the summer. Mm -hmm. And when it starts running out of grass and gets cold in Canada, the whole buffalo herd goes back to Texas and eats right. everything back and forth along the whole way. Right. And that would really make sense, like from my forage availability and, and like my forage, you know, when I have forage and when I have protein in the grass. Right. So like my grass is going to start coming in. Like I can have cool seasons in March if I've got rain and temperature most often I won't get much until probably mid-April, mid to late mm -hmm. April by the time the soil temperature gets up enough and I've had some moisture. Mm -hmm. That's when my cool season wakes up. Three to four weeks later, the warm season wakes up. A couple weeks after that is when the cool season quits. So I've got, I've got great protein and forage availability from... Well, that was my phone. Um, I've got great protein and forage availability from about May 1st to about end of July. Mm -hmm. you know sometimes early july sometimes late july and sometimes that i can't even stretch all the way down into september just kind of depends on the year we've had right but then there's a point where we get to the heat of the summer 
my warm season grasses shut off. You know, they go into, they go into root reserve and stem and seed head and they shut off and we just fall off this cliff of nutrition. Like the protein just kind of disappears suddenly. Mm-hmm. That happened like two months ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> cause it's, cause it's so friggin' dry. And, um, now we just kind of coast on stockpile, but then in a year where we'd get rain, mm-hmm. I would have a protein bump in November, December that would last till about mid January, mm-hmm. eh, maybe beginning of January when it gets really cold and the weather starts coming in. Um, I was kind of counting on that winter pro that, that late fall protein bump last year. Yeah. I didn't get it. Well, because of the lack of rain. Yeah, I'm not getting it this year either. Cause, cause, uh, cause, like we, was it we we put out oats, and it didn't do. No, we put out ryegrass because we, cause we, were bailing for our neighbors a lot, and that kind of, you know, interfered with our schedule and planting oats. So we just spread out ryegrass, and uh, that didn't come on worth a crap. And so, uh, and I and. You know, I blame it on the rain, but I mean, ryegrass by itself, I don't like planting because it's so stringy and small. Like it's not a broadleaf at all. Um, That'll do. I mean, it's a good grazing crop though. Right. Well, I mean, like, cause the way we do it is uh, we'd put oats and ryegrass. Like I wouldn't put ryegrass by itself. Um, You know, so we would put uh, oats and ryegrass together usually, but uh Again, because, you know, we got caught up cutting hay, you know, for our neighbors and stuff like that. That's uh, kind of what how, how it played out last year. But usually every year, especially when we get some rain, those oats improved a lot. They helped, they helped drastically in terms of feeding hay or not feeding hay, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, kind of on this same line. So I've got, uh, let's just call it right around 7,000 acres of native range. Okay. On the ranch, there was, um, from what I can tell on the, on Google satellite images, mm-hmm. like I can find about 560 to 580 acres that were farmed at one point, according to the FSA office, there is only 340. Okay. So somewhere between 350 and 600 odd acres of farm ground were ever that were all on this ranch. Cause that's pretty much all that was flat enough to, to be farmed. <laughs> right. And you know, the, the question keeps coming up to me, you know, other people ask my wife asks, and of course I ask myself, okay, so there is a couple hundred acres that are flat enough. I could drag, drag a tool across it with a tractor. Mm-hmm. Dad planted that stuff back the last of it back to grass in 1985. Okay. And it took, it wasn't until probably 2004, 2005 that we were really successful getting the Forbes and the tall grass reestablished in mm-hmm. those areas. And I, I, I get really hesitant to think about, you know, hooking up to a tractor and a big drill to go drag something into the dirt, you know, go drag in cover crop seed at $20 an acre. Mm-hmm man, that's an awful big gamble. It is. It that's is a gamble. Awful big gamble for a guy like me that's trying to operate on, you know, without any, without machinery like that. You know, I don't yeah. own that shit. I'd have to go, I'd have to go rent that power. <laughs> and 
it just seems like that's a that's a that's a lot of expense. But I, I can see where you know, it I I could definitely see a use case scenario for it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not saying that I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying that if I had farm ground that was still being farmed today, mm-hmm. like literally the guy across the fence who's uh they farm wheat a lot of wheat around here especially on the tops where my farm ground is mm-hmm. and it's probably it's just as bad as you think it is mm-hmm. you know a, a week after they cut the wheat they're running the disc through it it gets disc two or three times maybe mm-hmm. a spray then a field cultivator and they're planting it right now so it's all right you know it's it's less worse than six month fallow corn but it's still you know two three four month fallow fallow field for wheat, um, I don't. If I had a wheat field that was surrounded by pasture, mm-hmm. I'd be putting in some. I'd I'd be transition trying to transition that to no till, right? I'd be putting in native grasses. I mean, I get native grass seed is probably some of the most expensive shit you can buy on the planet. It's, okay, and so it's so like when you say native grass seed, is that like to that region or just? Like what would go that into region. that native seed? Okay. Uh, for me, I mean, there'd be some cool seeds that I'd put in, but primarily I'd I'd want to make sure I had some warm season, you know, native warm season grasses, big blue stem, little blue stem, right. grass, Indian grass, um, and maybe even some cytos grama. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, 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 I didn't do my research, so I'm not, not really prepared to talk about grass seed blends, but um, I, w- I would look for a blend that's 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 representative of what should be in your area now that being said two percent of the original native range is left Mm -hmm. you know up and down the great plains and i feel very fortunate that i have i've got a chunk of that Mm -hmm. you know I've, i've got the vast majority of this ranch has never been converted from grassland to anything Mm -hmm. else so there's 98 percent of it's gone right and you know i i'm gonna assume that you're on like where you're at was completely farmed up ripped up and improved grasses were planted or or something non-native is there and it's it's mostly a monoculture so the 46 acres uh that we own my dad planted uh coastal uh at some point you know uh, which, which I mean, is still pretty much there. Um, a lot, a lot of my area has a lot of Bermuda grasses. Um, you know, we, we haven't really touched, uh, our lease place with different grasses or anything like that. All we, well, except for the oats during the winter, but that's about it. Um, as far as the warm season grasses, I'm not sure what specifically, but I do know it's Bermuda grasses. Um, and I'm not sure if that, I, I mean, I don't think that's native. I mean, cause Bermuda grass isn't native to Texas. I don't think. Um, I don't, I don't think it is either. Right. But what I'm getting at is, you know, no matter, no matter what your land base looks like now or what few species of grass are on it or could be on it. Right. I think that, you know, that, that all of us in the plains, well, even, you know, in the mountains or, you know, in the east right we need to be looking at transitioning back away from these quote improved pastures or improved grasses that require inputs 
back uh-huh. to something that's more native that doesn't require inputs. Right. But the the trick is, is how do you get there? Like, you don't just take a farm field that, you know, has been growing wheat, wheat on a summer fallow rotation for the last 80 years. You're not just going to go drill in native range seed and something's going to come up next year. Mm-hmm. I could tell you that ain't going to happen like that. That would be a pipe dream. So right. maybe the thing we need to look at is like a pasture cropping transition to where, you know, we take this pasture and maybe the first year we do like a soil, we no-till in a soil health blend, like turnip radishes, things that'll fix nitrogen and other others in the soil. Mm-hmm. Then we come in, you know, and maybe there's some native seeds mixed in there, you know, warm mm-hmm. season, cool season grasses. Then the next time you come in, you no-till in something else. You no-till in like, you know, an oats or a rye or a wheat. Just something that's going to come up. Just something Mm -hmm. that's going to grow some more living roots to provide forage for the cows. Mm -hmm. Because it may take, it. you know, it it may take a year, two, three, four to establish a seed bank to where it Mm -hmm. will start, to where the seed bank can regenerate the plants. And the plants you see come up every year are coming from the seed bank and they're what will grow that year based on available soil nutrients mm-hmm. and available rainfall. Right. But what does that look like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would like to know that for sure. I mean, um, you know, I, I don't know. I want to do, I mean, the, the thing about regenerative agriculture that, that kind of fascinate fascinates me is obviously the saving money in your pocket um and then also uh you know kind of kind of helping the land and i mean at that point vegans don't have an argument you know ah well that's a can of worms it is i (laughs) it is okay are the vegans right it it depends on what it is um, I guess when you look at their, when 30,000 foot view, their argument that animal agriculture is destroying the planet. Uh, I mean, from my understanding, I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but in terms of carbon footprint, methane gas isn't nearly as detrimental as, uh, carbon footprint from vehicles. And things of that so i mean i i would agree with that and i guess i i wasn't necessarily trying to trying to trap you into saying anything at all right no 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 I know. Uh, and i think i think i think a lot of the vegan arguments are extremely superficial mm-hmm. and but then again i think they also have some extremely strong arguments because they're viewing life through the lens, a very narrow lens of what they see through their activists mm-hmm. and organizations like PETA and, and very cherry-picked media, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure there's some confirmation bias going on there. We're all guilty of it. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not guilty of suffering from con- confirmation bias every once in a while. And I, I guess there's a little bit of that you know, right here on our side, because, mm-hmm. you know, we have a tendency to view the world from our own narrow lens. Sure. And, you know, the way the, the my paradigm is, 
Like vegans wouldn't have a, vegans should not have any sort of a problem with anything I'm doing out here. Right. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's that I, I'm not doing business practices just to keep vegans happy. Like, let's be clear on that. I yeah. do things the way I do them because I think it's the right way. Right. Now, when you have some of them saying that, you know, conditions in hog houses are horrible or, you know, having to euthanize an entire barn of 10,000 hogs and the way they did that was right. horrible. Right. That shit is indefensible. Right. You know, I, the 10,000 head of cattle that died in the Kansas feedlots back in the summer due to the heat bulge overnight, that shit is indefensible. Mm -hmm. And that's why the vegans have an argument. Right. And that's why people are listening to the vegans is because we collectively in the beef industry, in agriculture, we do shit that is indefensible. Right. And um, but I do, I do think that on our side, you know, while they try to make an argument, they don't, you know, for example, the way Temple Grandin developed uh, working systems for cattle, the way that she developed a, a system to process them um you know i they don't have an argument i mean because because i i did a tiktok video the other day of where uh PETA tried to make a video on an animal getting stunned and it, it blew up <laughs> i ain't gonna i mean it got like what 1.4 million views I, I think it's kind of blown up in their faces honestly it did it did i mean like because in that video there's nothing wrong that i see it was it's quick humane hey, hey, you know. okay well, and what's the alternative PETA? Let them right. die of old age in a pasture. That's not only hurting themselves, but the environment as well. I mean, that's not humane. No, it's not. You know, the, the most humane, the most humane way is, is a bolt gun. And we're that's, talking about harvesting animals. Right. Right. I you agree hundred percent. And to that extent, um, I had, uh, had dinner with some friends last night and this was a, this was one of the topics that kept coming up in conversation is ethical slaughter. How do we, you know, how do we provide ethical slaughter to the, to the most amount of people as possible? And, you know, we were, we're talking about, you know, granted, we were just kind of throwing a lot of ideas around. We we're talking about mobile slaughter units again, and, you know, going around and, you know, a group having one and contracting around or, you know, having various fractional ownership interests where, you know, producers would have a fractional ownership interest in a mobile plant and the mobile plant would come to your ranch and you just lead the cow up or, you know, call them into a little pen and one second they're eating grass and pasture on the sun on their back. And the next they're on a one-way trip to freezer camp. Right. Now, I, I'd love to see us get a lot closer to that model and, mm -hmm. and lower stress on the animal because we owe it to our animals. To, to treat give them with them. respect. Absolutely. With yep. with ultimate respect, even up to and slightly past their final moments alive. Mm -hmm. I agree, hundred percent. I call me a little weird, but when I uh, when I drop them off at the plant, I say goodbye to each one of them and I thank each one of them as they come off the trailer. Mm -hmm. I do too. Uh, like, cause we had. Uh, off that Jersey nurse cow that I mentioned earlier, we had a beef master Jersey cross steer and, you know, I took him to the packer and, you know, I, it's, uh, it makes you think a little bit, you know, and, and appreciate what they have to contribute to you. 
it's a different trip than when you're just taking one to the barn. Right. And you know, the guy that buys her at the barn is just going to send her right to the plant. I mean, it's a, it's a different trip when you take her yourself. It is. It is. You know, it, something that people ought to experience a little more often, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But so kind of continuing down this path, you know, that is some of the, some of the practices that vegans get upset about, you know, like hormones in the meat. Okay. I get that. Yeah. I totally get that. I also totally get why backgrounders and feedlots will use hormones. Right. I mean, you take the nuts off your boys. There's no sex hormones in there. Right. They need to be replaced. Okay. But why are we pumping them full of estrogen? Why, why, why are we pumping them full of basically sex change hormones? Why not just keep it there if that's what the case is, if that's what you're trying to get back? Yeah. You know, why, why, why do we have to mix testosterone with estrogen to inject our, our castrated male cattle with? Why don't we mm-hmm. just do testosterone? Okay, I get it. It's a meat quality thing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the bulls need to look like boys and the cows need to look like girls. And what's the difference there? Okay, we want our, we want our boys to be big chiseled muscle. Mm-hmm. You don't want that chiseled muscle on the cow. You want nice, soft, rounded curves, right? Right. Testosterone puts up that hard, lean muscle. Mm-hmm. Estrogen puts up that fluffy, soft muscle. Right. So I, okay, I get it. That's why we got to use, that's why we're injecting steers with estrogen to, to get them to make that, that softer, fluffier muscle that's more rounded, more curved. For tenderness. For, but is it though? Probably not, but I mean, I, I assume that's their goal. Okay. You know, ten, tenderness. I, you know, I catch all kinds of hell <laughs> for my cattle. Oh, those old longhorns will taste like a boot. Whatever. <laughs> like, I, we're eating one that's five years old that I jerked out of the pasture and hauled to the processor. Yeah. Is it tough? It's only slightly tougher than anything you'd buy at Walmart. Right. The taste is freaking amazing. Right. I can eat an eight ounce piece of that and be way more full than eating a 24 ounce certified Angus from Walmart. Okay. Hmm. Marbling, it wasn't a graded prime, but it's really good looking meat. It's, right. it's super good looking meat. And I wouldn't say that it's tougher than old boot leather. In fact, I had a, uh, one of the folks that I sold a half to, they had sirloins the other night. And they said once they got past the connective tissue on the outside and the fat, mm-hmm. that it was so tender they could almost cut it with a fork. Interesting. Like, okay. Yeah, by the way, I just want you to know, that was a six-year-old Coriana that I pulled out of the pasture and hauled to the processor. That's interesting. <laughs> so, there, not all grass finish, not all grass is create equal. I agree and, with that. And I, I that's some of the, the, there is a quality issue, like with people doing grass fed beef, because the forage that they ate for the last 60 days has so much of an effect on the flavor profile of that meat. Yes. And that's, that's what it really comes down to is, is the diet that lasts, you know, the 60 to 90 days. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to give a lot of the meat a flavor profile. And when I, 
when I eat some of this that, you know, out of ours that we processed, I can close my eyes and almost get a vision of the grasses and that, you know, of the forbs and of the, of the area that they've been in for the last couple of months. I can almost get that vision in my head just from the taste that are in my mouth. Right. And I don't think that, uh, I don't think the folks that are going to Walmart buying that CAB, that prime CAB get near that same experience. Right. Um, Cause I mean, you know, cause a lot of those stairs there, they're pushed too hard, too quick. And, you know, tenderness and, you know, marbling it, it, that, that's what takes time, you know? And that's, that's why like Wagyu, uh, cattle that that's why it takes so long for them to, uh, develop that marbling. That's why it takes what 32 months, give or take yeah, to, for them to finish. Uh, cause like, if you look, if you butcher a Wagyu animal as a yearling or 14 months old, it's not going to have much better marbling than a Coriani. Yep. Uh, you know, so it, 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 it all depends on how they're developed, how long they're developed and you know, the way you do it, what you do it on, what you develop them on. It, it's what you develop them on. Mm -hmm. I think is, is, is a lot of it. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I can take any of my calves at any age after weaning and they could, they could go to the yard and transition to corn and gain great. Mm -hmm. Would they finish like a straight up Angus at the right. same weight? Hell no. I'm, I'm going to be a lot lighter. I'm going to be probably 20%, you know, 15 to 20% lighter mm -hmm. at finish weight. Yeah. But it'll still finish. It'll still pack on pounds and it'll still pack on marbling and condition. And I, I, my old mentor, Ed, now granted, this is all anecdotal and third hand, whatever. Right. He told me that he, uh, he sent a, he had some Corriente Charlotte cross caps and he had a whole lot load of them. Mm -hmm. And he, he kept ownership of them all the way through the yard, all the way to the plant. How many of a pot load of Corriente Charlotte cross calves do you think graded into the CAB system? He said he had I mean, over, he said he had 40% mm -hmm. of those calves that didn't have a drop of Angus blood in them. None of them were black. It's at 50. Oh, really? He pulled CAB premium on them. Wow. Yeah. And I think uh, almost 20% of them graded prime. And another thing that goes into it that I don't think people really grasp a handle on is, is genetics. Genetics play a huge factor into it because in the beef master business, you'll have animals that are, cause like we scan our cattle. I think the, the deadline window is 500 days, either 500 or 550 days. One, no, I think it's 500 days, but anyway, so, so they, uh, they get scanned and I mean, you can tell which genetics, uh, consistently marble well and which ones don't. Um, and like, especially you go like, cause there's a bull, uh, developed by Lorenzo Lasseter called Elbar and Fuego. He is one of the better marbling bulls and a lot of the, a lot of those calves are developed on straight grass. And so like, you can look at that rib fat 
and then look at that marbling and tell which one are the true marblers. For example, if you have uh, an animal that marbles at a 4.5, which is a choice. Okay. Okay. And then you have, they have under a 10th of an inch of rib fat. That's going to be one of your good marblers. But then you have an animal that has, I don't know, a 2.5 IMF, but then has a 0.25 rib fat. That's not going to marble that well. And so like in the, in part of what I, when I select cattle and I'm looking for that marbling content, that's what I look for is I kind of, uh, compare the marbling to the rib fat. Okay. And so that's, you know, I, uh, it, so are you looking for a ratio between rib fat and the marble score? So each, each certain characteristic have their own ratio. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and, uh, I mean, I'd like, I'd say, I mean, in an ideal world, I like to have an IMF score of at least four because that's choice, but I will, you know, I'll accept in the threes because that's high select. Um, and so if you theoretically, if you can do high select or choice on forage only switching to grain in a feedlot will bump that up significantly. Yeah. And then, so, and of course, you know, the USDA considers finished at 0.45. So if I, if they can have, but like you can, you can also tell if an animal has been fed grain or not based on how big that rib, rib and rump fat is too. So like if, uh, you know, they're at close to finished, you know, they've been developed, but if they are under, I would say, I mean, if, if they're like close to a 10th of an inch of rib fat or less, they've definitely, that's straight grass easy. Um, so, I mean, again, when you can find an animal that marbles high with a minimal amount of rib fat, that's your outlier right there. And that's the one you want to keep. Correct. Okay. So and let's so, take away, let's take away all the technology tools. Okay. What's your visual indicator for that? Flushing ability. Okay. What are you looking at specifically? If an animal can keep their condition in a rough environment, that's part, that's a lot of it. Um, but it's not, not just that, but like, like, in terms of carcass merit but an animal that has a good that is easy fleshing fleshing ability correlates to fertility as well yes so i mean visually if you can find an animal that is has a good fleshing ability those are the ones you need to keep as well i guess what um like are you looking at anything specifically in the ribeye or rump area versus ribs um so i don't know how to explain it but like you can tell if an animal is going to have a lot of ribeye area if like if you look look at them from behind or just look at their top their top lines are going to be significantly wider sometimes you have those animals that have like if you look at a loaf of bread it kind of has has that groove and then dips in the middle that's going to be a big ribeye animal um, you know, so basically width of top is going to emphasize ribeye area, um, and then just muscle expression itself. Okay. Okay. 
Oh. Let's um tell me Tell me about what what what's your job description for a cow? What what makes a successful cow for John Tipton? Well, uh cows are a factory. They need to work. Um, you know, they can't be pampered. They need they need to get bred around 13 to 15 months of age starting they need to have that calf at around two years old um you need to have they need to have a good udder you know real tight bag plant you know small teats it's where that calf can fit in its mouth without me having to help it um and then she needs to get bred back when that calf is that side um, and she needs to continue doing that throughout her life. Do you pull calves? Not really. I mean, I have, but not in a while. Um, the last time I did it, uh, I, th I think, I mean, you can, you can also t like, cause she, the calf was born late. Um, and it was a heifer that was born over a hundred pounds which isn't normal, but, no. and, and it was, it was off of a heifer too. So it was a first calf heifer. Um, did you keep her or did you get rid of her? She died. She had, she had an aneurysm. Oh, that's not ideal. No. So, but I guess that, that, that still answers the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, okay. Would you, would you have kept her? Uh, it it would depend on the circumstances. I mean, it would depend on the due date of that calf. It was if it was born late, you know. Um, is it that cow's fault? But at the same time, when I so select for animals, I look at, you know, their adjusted birth weights. I look at their birth weight ratios, and I look at that birth weight EPD. And I mean, on heifers especially, I use a bull that I know will be a calvinese bull. Okay. And so, you know, for the, for the most part, I haven't been, I haven't been wrong, uh, when selecting on what, I mean, it's, you know, heifers, especially that you gotta, you gotta make sure that they're with a bull that isn't going to throw 90 pound calves. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. I can definitely yeah. see that. So, but also when it comes to birth weights, it's not all on the cow. It's on the bull too. So you can't call a cow for something that's 50% responsible on the bull. Okay. I I mean, I, I can see your point. Like, yeah. I like to say that I'm a little more strict than that. You know, if a cow mm -hmm. doesn't bring in a live calf. Well, no, I mean, if then, a cow doesn't bring in a live calf, I mean. And if, again, if she it, doesn't, doesn't bring in a live calf or she has to be assisted. Yeah. She just go down the road. Right. And, no, and I mean, I agree with that though. Whatever reason she didn't bring in a calf, even if she had a live calf and it got eaten by coyotes or the calf got sick and died. Well, if you I'm read, still going to blame the cow. If you read that, that book that Tom Lasseter wrote or Lori Lasseter wrote, uh, Lasseter's philosophy of cattle raising. Um, whenever you keep a cow that has lost a calf, that cow is going to have an advantage over other, all the other cows that have had calves. Um, 
And Explain so, that to me like I'm five. Because because to me, you know, like like we talked about with the job description of a cow. She's got to bring in a calf. I mean, that's yeah. her whole entire job. And if she rolls a donut one year, like that's got to be a balance between what is her genetic value to my herd of future progeny? And can I afford to feed her for another year mm-hmm. in order to try to get another calf out of her? Right. And I, 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 I get what you're saying, but I think a lot of guys get in a trap like, oh, we'll breed her back next year. She'll get back next year. And, you know, they'll put two or $300 a cost in the cow over the winter to keep her around instead mm-hmm. of turning her into a $1,000 bill. They'll put $300 a cost in her, try to breed her again next year, and she rolls a donut the second year. Mm. Well, yeah, no, I mean, most, I mean, we've, again, we've never really had calving issues. So I, so that, that answer was, you know, that question was kind of, you know, different because, I mean, it's just, we, we haven't really run into that issue much, but, um, you know, so again, when that cow, the cow has the advantage because it has a lot longer time to recuperate compared to the other cows that do have calves. So she has an advantage of recuperating compared to those other cows. But then if we keep her in our herd because she had let's say an unfair advantage of a, of an unproductive year yeah. to gain back that body condition. I, I kind of almost feel like that's not doing us favors down the line because then we have genetics that, that need to skip a year to, to, to get back to fertility. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. But you got to do what works for you and your environment. I mean, mm-hmm. every, everybody has a, a total, Everybody's got a totally different situation, and that mm-hmm. and that's the bottom line, right? You know, what works for me won't work for my neighbors across the fence, right? And so, um, you know, and another thing that came out of that philosophy book is a cow should provide a dividend every year, whether it's that calf or her. Yes. Yes. And sometimes the dividend is a. Uh, is it freezer camp (laughs) that's true that's true uh so uh so how do things look for you the rest of the winter do you have enough forage to get through back to green grass or are you uh still working on that uh let's see we got an inch of rain at both places not too long ago but i don't think that's near enough for what we need i think we need about a good 10 inches you know to fill up our tanks um but as far as forage goes uh it's as of right now it's not looking good uh because from from all that summer drought but so i definitely don't have any stockpiled grass whatsoever um but we like i said we bought about 120 bales of improved jigs grass so that'll that's helping us so far whenever you know we need to feed cows um you know but you know I, I I get that like unless you saw unless you saw the drought coming in the spring, yeah, you, I, the, there was no way to prepare for it unless you one, saw it coming in the spring. Well, the thing is, is I'm kind of based on how the winter goes is how the rest of the year is going to go, and so like this the last winter it didn't rain that much, 
So I didn't really think anything of it, but looking back on it, that's probably a big indication we're going to have a bad drought. Generally, yeah. Um, my benchmark is less than four inches of rain between November 1 and April 1 indicates okay. indicates drought. And, you know, keep in mind, that's based on my 22 inches-ish of rainfall a year and the, let's call it the statistical average distribution of rainfall throughout the year for the last 130 years. Mm-hmm. If I don't get four inches in the, in the dormant season, I better be planning for drought and it better be dry. Last year we had like two and a half. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking in going into April, you know, I'm going through March. I know where I'm already sitting for rain. I can look at the national drought monitor and look at the drought mitigation center. I can look at the climate prediction center. And back in March, they were all saying the same thing. Like, it's going to be dry for the next three months. Like, okay, I've got a drought indicator. CPC says drought for three months. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm planning. Right. And that's the direction I went. And it seems like the people that are really struggling through this drought are the people that have never been through one. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know how you know south texas it's it's been prone to or at least in the hallettsville area it can you know drought you know smaller droughts have been common you know like to to the point of where the grasses become dead but never to the point of where i just have no grass you know to where to where the grass just doesn't grow at all you know um and it, it was scary I, uh, I've never seen it this bad in my life. Um, so the last bad drought we had here, uh, 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. it was, it was not near this bad. Yeah. And some of the old timers that have, um, since gone extinct and departed us on this earth, mm-hmm. they, I remember several of them saying that the drought that we had back there, 10, 11, 12 was worse than the bad one they had in the mid fifties around here. Hmm. Now, and I was thinking about this last night um, when we were coming back from town. I feel like I kind of have a half-ass accurate picture of the history of the plains as far as major events. You know, Europeans when they were where, and you know when when Native Americans were where, and you know who did what, and and how things may have looked like i feel like i kind of have a general idea of that but then like i get into more specific things about you know how things were here and how things have been here for the last 150 years and you know doing this podcast talking to folks like you and you know a lot of other people i've talked to um i think there's a lot of history that we don't understand about our area and about you know what went on and what was there Mm -hmm. you know the last 100 150 years and how the area used to look Right. And not saying that, you know, that that's where we're going back to, but I guess what I'm saying is, you know, that oh, shit, I guess I don't know what I'm saying. Lost train of thought again. <laughs> That'll happen. Um, so yeah, planning for winter. I'm, um, I'm still struggling to get the supplement hay that I need. Okay. And 
I'm going to own that one. I, uh, I should have, I should be, I should have been more proactive in making that happen instead of relying on somebody else to get it for me. So, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's kind of why we've, me and my dad have tried to bail our own hay. Um, a lot of the hay that we do bail though comes from, uh, our neighbors. So, uh, like, we'll, you know, bail hay for them and then split the hay 50, 50. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that, that totally makes sense. And like we were talking earlier, uh, you know, I've got, you know, it's old farm ground, mm-hmm. man, it sure would be sure. It would be nice to have my own hay field or have my own alfalfa field. You know, that's just there that, you know, I hire somebody to come in and plant. Mm. I hire somebody to come in and bail. Well, yeah. then you get into custom hire expense. Oh, and then we're farming now. And then, oh, well, mm-hmm. while, we're, while we're doing that, let's let's maybe plant some cover crops so we could strip graze. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of possibilities. Like, um, so, you know, I, I thought about just trying to come up with various schemes to get my cows through the winter on as little as possible with as little effort and labor and, and, and yeah. diesel fuel as possible. And, you know, part of me think, part of me still kind of thinks that that maybe plant some cool season covers yeah is not the dumbest thing in the world that i could do right i mean it's 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 helped us like because if i remember whenever we only put out hay i mean every other day we'd be putting out two bills per place kind of thing and then whenever we started planting oats i mean i have about what 30 mama cows and we've had that for a while but there was sometimes where we only put out 20 bills that winter ouch well i mean because of those oats i mean we didn't you yeah know, we did oh you we, didn't uh, need to put up that because you had the oats yeah gotcha gotcha right yeah yeah we didn't you know we didn't we you know our hay feeding depleted tremendously once we put out those those winter grasses so and and i mean you know again i'm trying to figure out a more cost effective way to put that out in that and you know my guess is is to to no-till it yeah well there's uh some other strategies you know if you're gonna one one strategy i've seen i think uh, my friend katie talked about it um about doing like a swath grazing type scenario where they mm-hmm. do go in with a swather and lay everything down and put it in a swath. And maybe they and maybe they might bail a little bit of it just so they know like how many feet down that swath is X number of pounds. Right. So then they just fence off a portion of that swath and, and you know, like make blocks. Mm-hmm. So if you need, you know, if your cows are gonna need two thousand pounds of forage for the day, you just go out and you measure off what about two thousand pounds is in that swath and add a little bit for poor measurement and fudge factor right and and roll with that and then you know there's still a diesel fuel pass of the swather Mm -hmm. but compared to the fuel for bailing and the time for bailing it's a lot less it is and you know you can replace that baler and a tractor and then the loader tractor and the bale trailer with a guy on a four-wheeler with a reel of poly wire right well, there's also that. Um, I got to get out of here a little bit. Let's talk about Haywar and then uh, then we can go. 
Oh man. <laughs> I didn't pay too much attention to it, but it was it was uh it was entertaining for sure. Yeah, so uh it, it hasn't come out yet, but uh previous episode I've done that everybody should have already listened to by that and this comes out with uh with Caitlin from Noble Research. Okay. The you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> she she kind of got a little salty with me. She's like, yeah, you started all that. Then you just ghosted everybody on the app and left us to fight your battles for you. Like, sorry, when I get a video that's get half a million views, I got to log out and not read comments for a while because that shit is not good for my mental health. <laughs> right. Man, I tell you what, that, that app can get stressful for sure. Yeah, there's well, something. It's, think- it, there's, it's a different level of toxic for sure. But it's also a different level of connection. It is. Yeah. I, I mean, there's things on that app that I've learned. Like, cause I mean, I, I have an animal science degree. There's things on that app that I've learned that I didn't learn in college. Um, you know, there was a lot of things that I did learn in college, college that were extremely useful that I still use today. You know, like AI, I learned how to AI in college and I AI, my, AI my own cattle, but I mean, Again, there's just, it's a different kind of informative. Right. And it's a different, it's a different kind of engagement than pretty much any other platform too. It is. It is. And you hit a different audience. I I mean, there's always all kinds of weird stuff coming up on my, coming up on my for you feed. I'm like, why is this here? But you uh, got pet raccoons, pet tigers. I'm like, what in the (laughs) hell is this? Yeah. And then the next one is somebody dancing. And then the next one is somebody yelling about the price of hay. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of wild, but I will. And maybe this is echo chamber effect. Mm -hmm. I see more conventional guys starting to ask questions and moving towards the more regenerative practices. than I see guys doing regenerative stuff going the other way. I would agree with that because I mean, I'm probably an example of that because I've, uh, all I've known is conventional stuff, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm again, my main thing that I'm wanting to accomplish is cut the cost that I have been paying for. Um, and then being able to improve the environment for the longevity of my family down the line. Right. So and i want my great great grandkids to still be raising beef master cattle i doubt that would probably happen but you know that's that's the goal and so if i can be able to make that happen in any way i can that's what i'm gonna try to do i like it i was i was sitting here thinking listening to you talk thinking and thinking back to oh we were talking about vegans earlier mm-hmm. and I think once once people kind of start coming over to regenerative agriculture and learning about the soil and ecosystem function, we start asking questions right. about conventional practices. And a lot of those conventional practices that are accepted mm-hmm. are indefensible from an animal welfare point of view or a human health point of view. Mm-hmm. And social media is helping shine a light in some of those dark corners and asking some of those questions that, um, that some of the big players in the industry would rather not have asked. 
I'd rather not have said out loud. Um, see, vegans, back to vegans. Again, I forget. I I need to take better notes. I forgot what the hell I was going to say again. Um, you know, we, we, we've got to be a little more transparent. we got to be a little bit more open about what we're doing. Um, and better about meeting people where they are, not just right. other producers, but some of these vegans. Right. And I, I think it bears to be said that, you know, <laughs> they just have a, they have a, a strange idea of what sort of animal suffering is acceptable. Yeah. Like, okay, you want everybody to eat plant-based diet. Great. Let's farm up the whole damn world and let's plant everything, you know, to soy and kale. Right. But here's the problem. When we rip up those fields, we destroy all the life in those fields. When we mm -hmm. spray our insecticides on them, we kill all the insects, which in turn is less food for birds, which in turn is less food for other birds and other predators. So it's like we... If we follow the path that the vegans want us to follow, Bill Gates wants us to follow eating fucking fake meat and oh plants God. all the time, we're going to be on a brown ball of dust. Yeah. Like Wally, -E, the movie Wally -E is our future. Right. If we go down that path. And then their whole ideology is just going to go down the crap hole because they, they, can, can. they can't grow nothing. Exactly. Oh, we'll just invent our way out. We'll just invent new fertilizers. We'll just invent better pesticides. We'll just invent better insecticides. No, I don't think that works anymore. I think we're at the point where Mother Nature has said, enough, enough with the bullshit. Right. And I, th I think it could be scary in the future with, you know, food availability. You know, there's that I'm seeing, I, I've been seeing it on, on our favorite app and on and on Facebook uh, the last couple of days. And by the time this comes out, it may be a reality that there just might not be winter vegetables. Yeah. Because of the drought and lack of lack of irrigation water and too high of temperatures where in Southwest Arizona, where most of our vegetables are grown for the winter. Well, to kind of give you a better understanding of how bad that drought, this drought has been, our water well went dry at the house. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And so I, because I have, I have breeding seasons for my bulls, you know, from my herd, I had to turn around and let my bulls out with my cows. So they're going to have summer calves, some of them. So you couldn't take a shower or wash dishes. Is that what you're telling me? Well, that's, so this is our, I don't live at that place, but yes. Okay. So, I mean, I, cause like where I live, I live in Katy, which is an outskirt of Houston, okay. but why didn't so, you just tell me you lived in Katy? I know where that is. You're like yeah. Howlettsville and all these other little towns. Like, I don't know where the hell that's at. But yeah, Katy, yeah. I know where that's at. It's yeah. Like so, Fort Hood, right? Uh, no, that's like, it's on the west side of Houston. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, because my buddy, he uh, lives down the road and I'll shower his place when I go out there. But, wow. We had... Um... We had some we had some friends we were in an executive link program with that um let's see, how do I tell this story without any identifying details? Let's just say they were in um northeast Colorado mm -hmm. and they had a fairly small operation and they'd been there 
after they'd been there about a year, they had to drill another water well and it mm. wasn't that great. And then they got like the property they had came with a, a water right from another property north that they got to use and they had water at their house, you know, the barn and the, and the guest house. And one of their first cons, one of their first concerns was, well, how do we do this? You know, how do we build this business? And I said like, so hold on here. You moved in there and a year later, one well went dry. Mm-hmm. So you start getting water from the other one and it's dropped 15 feet in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you guys going to run a feedlot and raise cows if you don't have water there? Right. And they just kind of stopped. And, you know, over the next couple of months, they went back and they, you know, went back through the well logs and did some work on their water wells. And they came back to the next meeting and were like, um, yeah, we're worried about the water. We're probably going to sell the place. Right. And they're in Nebraska now. Wow. And, you know, I, I get that like Eastern Colorado is a totally different scenario than where you're at. But um, I think the important thing to say here is we've mismanaged water in a lot of the country. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to run out of grass in a drought. It's another thing to run out of water. Yeah, that's a much, much bigger deal. And it is. You know, we talk about drought proofing the ranch with grazing planning. Another huge part of that is drought planning, drought proofing the ranch with infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, we've been talking about drought all the episode. Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and bullshit anybody and say my creeks are fine because they're not. They're hurting. My ponds, okay, stock tanks, they're all hurting too. Right. Three to four feet low. Which isn't a big deal when all your shit is 15 feet deep. Right. You know, if your pond's only five feet deep and it's four feet low, I get that's a problem. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it, all, the, all the ponds on the ranch are, are fairly young and they're not full of dirt. And they were designed mm-hmm. to be deep to be able to, you know, to be able to live through droughts like this. So, right. I'm, and, and drought proofing the ranch for me, is um let's see let's see if i can do this off the top of my head cold i've got 29 tanks i've got nine different pumping stations and eight water systems i've wow. got two storage locations and each storage location i store about twenty thousand gallons of water wow so yeah. i don't have to rely on groundwater to water my cows is is the moral of the story because ponds go dry creeks go dry mm. if my water wells go dry there will have been signs that they're going to be in pain mm-hmm. like my ponds will have to be dry for prop for a long time before i'm gonna lose well with my water or lose my water wells so mm-hmm. but that being said you know you we just i just learn to not rely on a creek or a pond and so that's my emergency grass yeah i still have grazing around my ponds i still have grass around my creeks and Mm -hmm. i've deliberately saved that in case i do have a major water system failure right you know in a in a better year that might not be so much of a component in the plan right but these last two years I've had to make sure I've left grazing where I could get to it if I had a major water problem. Right. I mean, I from from the bull show that we had, I lucked out 
I mean, that's going to pretty much pay our way for drilling a new well. Yeah, hey, there's somebody at my door. I will be right back. All right. It was just FedEx dropping something off. They felt the need to knock on the door extra loud today for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen. You know, when you live 20 miles from town and somebody knocks on your door middle of the day, you should probably go see who that is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because like if some like as if I'm at my parents' house in the middle of Houston, someone knocks on the door, it's like whatever. But like if I'm at the ranch and someone knocks on my door, I get a little I'm like, okay, well, what is that? Yeah, you know. what are you doing in my driveway? How did right. you get here? <laughs> you know. It's a it's it's a little different out at the ranch. It so, is because I mean you don't know it could be anybody, you know. Well, I live off of a back road. Yeah. I mean, it's a paved road, but it's still a back road. I mean, it's pretty much only locals. It's it's not it's not really a through road. It right. But where the ranch is down on the highway, U.S. Highway 160 cuts right through the place. Mm -hmm. And headquarters, where my dad lives, where the shop is, where my pens are, it's on the highway. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, it's right on the highway. And um, I, it hasn't happened in a long time since, you know, people got GPS and, you know, TomTom and MapQuest. But uh, I remember there was a story my dad used to tell. It would have been, it would have had to have been earlier, mid nineties. Mm -hmm. He was out on the porch one day, just drinking a beer. And this fella rolls in in like a Lincoln town car. Right. And, you know, they, they have this conversation and this guy starts asking him like, oh, where's the nearest fuel? Well, it's another 20 miles down the road. Where's the nearest hotel? It's another 20 miles down the road. And then the guy's like, well, where are the mountains? And dad's like, what? Well, these are the foothills, right? I'm, I'm close to the Rocky. I thought should be close to Rocky Mountains, right? And dad's like, no, no, sir. <laughs> you need to get back in your car and go another seven hours if you think you're in the mountains. <laughs> the right. guy had no idea where he was. He was just driving west to go to the mountains to go to Colorado. Hmm. Like, no, you're about seven hours short, pal. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, that guy might have been... He might have had all six cans of a six pack, just didn't have the plastic thingy to keep them all together. Right. Oh. All right, man. Is there uh is there anything you want to talk about today or uh you ready to get out of here? I think that's about that about covers it, man. I really uh I really appreciate you bringing me on here. It's uh the first time I've ever been on a podcast, so I'm pretty pretty happy about it. Well, I'm glad to have you here. It's been been fun. You got good equipment. You got you know, I love I always love it when the video pops up and my guest has a microphone in front of them and headphones on because they know it's going to be a good interview. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I appreciate it, man. It's, I hope to be on here again sometime for sure. Yeah. You know, a year or so down the line, make some changes, right. get some positive things going on. Love to have right. you back on for sure, brother. Between now and then other mm -hmm. than rancher John on TikTok, where can people find you? So I have uh rancher at rancher John on Instagram. Uh and then Tipton Beef Masters on Facebook is uh my cattle page. Okay. And yeah, and then Jonathan Tipton on Facebook if 
you want to find my personal page. Okay. I don't always list my personal page everywhere. Like people will right. find that sucker anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. People. Well, like, cause I have, I have a lot of cattle people that are within the beef master breed on that page. So I like to tell people if you want to follow what I'm doing at work and the ranch stuff and the cows, right. Come to Red Hills Rancher. If yeah. you want me to fill up your Facebook wall with libertarian propaganda, <laughs> friend me on Facebook. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I don't usually accept friend requests from people I don't know. So, I mean, you know, but I, uh, I don't either. But when you get friend requests with like 50, 60, 150 mutual friends, it's like, I gotta, I gotta know you from somewhere or something, you know, or at least know of you. But yeah, I mean, so I, I wanted, I didn't want to make my personal Instagram like where people could find me. So I made a Rancher John page on Instagram for my kind of like my public account for, you know, agricultural content, pretty much similar to what I do on TikTok. You know, I kind of, I mean, a lot of my videos on that page, I've saved the video from TikTok and turned around and put it on there. <laughs> It's so, a lot easier to go that way with videos than to make an Instagram video work on TikTok. Yeah, because I mean, because you can't really save videos on Instagram like that. And their editing or, tools suck. Yes. Yes. So, but yeah, that's, uh, and then, then go, uh, go like my Beef Master Cattle business page at Tipton Beef Masters on Facebook and on Instagram as well. All right. I'll make sure they all get in the show notes along with, uh, try to find a, I'll try to find a link for the Bonsma book. If you want me mm -hmm. to message you that, I can do yeah. that. And, yeah, for uh, sure, please. The Lassiter philosophy of beef. and um, It's Lassiter philosophy of cattle raising. I'll get it. It'll yeah. be there. <laughs> right. All right, man. Let's get All out right. of here. All right, buddy. I appreciate it. Yep. Y'all have a great week. Yes, sir. You too.